Welcome to Six Feet from Normal, a podcast dedicated to covering untold stories of the coronavirus pandemic. Brought to you by reporters at the Medeal News Service. I'm Alec Bose. And I'm Joe Snell. And I'm Sarah Wilson. Today, we're exploring how education has changed in the midst of COVID-19 and what it will mean moving forward for teachers and families. First, we catch up with Lindsay Arnold, a Baltimore City kindergarten teacher, who's navigating the unique challenge of teaching five and six-year-olds through a computer screen. Then we'll be speaking with Kevin Schwartz and Sharon Laidlaw, two tech experts from the Austin, Texas Independent School District, who took the lead on providing high-speed internet to students in need. And later, we'll talk to our newsroom colleague Piper Hudsmith Blackburn to hear about her latest reporting on how the virus has impacted community colleges. We've got some ground to cover today, so stick around. One of the many side effects of this quarantine is families and teachers giving their children the best education possible in the absence of in-person schooling. This starts to get tricky when you're dealing with really young children. We spoke with Lindsay Arnold, a teacher in West Baltimore, to hear her experience in working with quarantined kindergartners. Hey, Lindsay, it's Joe here. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you start by telling us your name and what you do and where you work? Sure. My name is Lindsay Arnold. Um, I'm a kindergarten teacher um, in West Baltimore City. So just to get us going, take us back to when they first closed down schools and what your initial reaction was in that moment. Yeah, that was um, a crazy day and we definitely felt like we were taken really off guard. It was announced on a Thursday and that Friday we had a scheduled teacher work day. So we already weren't planning on having kids in the building that Friday. As that week progressed, we kind of like could see that the tides were turning and everyone was talking about school closings. And I really did not think it would happen for so many of our kids like this is how they eat Um, and that I was like that would be a huge operation to shut down and then I actually we got an email that said okay we're gonna use Friday not as our planned professional development day but as a day to prepare work packets on the very off chance that we don't come back to school and then the governor went live after the school day ended and said Friday was the last day. So for us, we didn't even get to say goodbye to our kids or like know that we weren't going to see them. Can you take us through when you first started teaching at home? I understand you started by reading books through classes that were being live streamed. On that Friday, it kind of turned into like a scramble Corona planning day and we got together and we just said okay what are we going to do next week and then we thought what are we going to do if this is long term my team decided that we wanted to start a youtube channel so that we could still deliver content and not do it live but just pre-record videos put them up there um, just so that the kids were still getting to see our faces and kind of hear about that so we actually started it that day and then once the district officially moved to online learning then we started putting out more content and my colleagues started uploading um, their lessons as well 
So it's not uncommon for classes right now to be completely online, especially at the high school and college and university level. But we don't actually really see that when it comes to younger kids, especially this young. Can you talk about some of the challenges that come from teaching five and six year olds through a computer screen? Yeah, so I think the main takeaway is that no one, I don't think at the end of this, is going to be advocating for online kindergarten. Um, at least I hope not, because there are quite a few challenges. I think the biggest challenge is that the independence level of our kids, um, even the fourth and fifth graders, probably even the younger kids, they can get on the computer, they can go to YouTube, or they can go to the apps that their teachers want them on and they can really go through those lessons and work pretty independently. And our kids just aren't there yet. With the little ones, like you really have to have a lot of parent support. One of the reasons that we chose to do a YouTube channel was they can just kind of sit and watch the videos and we try to keep them fairly short. I try to keep mine like under 15 minutes, which is probably even still too long. Having that as a tool opposed to like trying to do live classroom sessions, which we do a little bit of, um, but doing um, something where they can just go on and their parents can like sit them in front of it for 15 minutes and walk away and actually get a little bit more of a break. Um, whereas anything else that we ask them to do is going to have to be super hands-on and like really teaching them um, all of the skills and basically doing what we normally do. Lindsay, what are some of the challenges you are facing by teaching at the kindergarten level, where so much of the learning process is done kinetically uh, by movement or touch or interaction? Yeah, that is a huge challenge. I put up the videos and I'm like, please watch these, please do this. But then we've also been trying to like give parents ideas um, of other activities that they can do with their kids that will be more hands on and things that they can, you know, that they probably have around their house. One of the huge bummers about having zero warning for having the schools closed is that we could have sent them home with their crayons. We could have sent them home with notebooks and pencils and paper and like made sure that everybody had school materials and we just did not get that opportunity. So we're kind of working with what they have at home. But I know we had one day a few weeks ago that was really gorgeous outside. And I just was like, please go outside and do a scavenger hunt with your kids and like look for a flag, look for a mailbox. And we had like a list of things. So I try to just tell them, you know, don't push it like learning. Yes, of course, school is important. Learning is important. But if they are really fighting you on it and they just want to go play, just let them go play like it's fine. But we are seeing a lot of schools preparing to shut down for the rest of the year if they have not already done so. My question to you is, how do you feel moving forward, whether that's something where you start coming back to school at the beginning of the fall? Or do you feel worried that this may last longer than that? 
we're still supposed to go back May 15th, so they have not called off our entire year yet. My guess would be that that's on the way. Um, but like only as of last Thursday, did they even call to May 15th? We were April 30th before. So really, they're just trying to space it out as much as they can. Gosh, I hope we go back on time next year because just the logistics around the beginning of the school year are so different. And I just don't even know how we sort people into classes and make connections with families. I mean, the one thing about the timing with this was that it was late enough in the year where, you know, we already had pretty good established relationships with families. And so now if we have to go back and we get a whole new class list in September, that's going to be way more difficult. I'll go into the year trying to like be more prepared, make sure everybody is connected digitally, all the parents, um, and that I have a good working phone number for them. And then um, maybe even just at the beginning of the year, like making sure that they already have supplies at home. Just in case we have to do this again, let's have our like emergency kits ready for online learning and kind of go from there. Lindsay, thank you again for joining us today and best of luck to you and your students in this new learning environment. As students and teachers transition to online schooling, one disparity has been especially highlighted, internet access. To make sure students can stay connected, the Austin Independent School District equipped over 100 school buses with Wi-Fi and placed them around the city where the district has identified the highest need for internet access. We caught up with Kevin Schwartz and Sharon Laidlaw from the district to learn more. I am Sharon Laidlaw, and I'm one of the lead technology design coaches for Austin ISD. And I'm Kevin Schwartz, I'm the technology officer for Austin ISD. So we know from like the press release that this idea was in the works months before the COVID-19 outbreak, of course, but can you explain a little bit about the process, about kind of getting it um, running and working with Khajiit and how the pandemic kind of increased the urgency of it? Sure. So, yeah, Kajit's a great partner, and they approached us um, with the opportunity to outfit every one of our school buses with Wi-Fi and Internet access, uh, presuming that we would be in a, a typical situation where kids would be going back and forth to school on buses. Um, that's obviously not the case, but that's what the grant was designed to do. We would we would pilot it sort of this spring, and then for next school year, have it in place throughout the whole school year. And we, you know, we kind of eagerly went into that 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 situation and had planned to um, install the systems in all 530 plus school buses that we have over spring break. Uh, obviously, when the, the crisis around the, the pandemic hit, um, kids weren't going to be riding buses anymore, but we still had this resource at hand. And, you know, I would never say like it's everything that we're doing or that it solves all situations, but it's part of a solution. And um, the, uh, the, the, the timing was right to go ahead and install the buses over spring break, the way it worked out. And so redeploying them sort of became kind of kind of obvious to us. So how did you and your team decide what neighborhoods and communities to put these buses in? You know, we thought that was going to be a really hard decision to make. And it turned out we just talked to our transportation folks and they knew where where the kids were that were concentrated. And so the ideas for the for the pilot days, the first two days actually came from our transportation team. And uh, that, so knowing that, hey, this apartment complex or that apartment complex has a bunch of our kids in it that ride the bus every day. Um, and then, of course, our, our geography kind of tells us where those students live. 
helped. We looked for sites where we could actually park the buses because there's a limited range, so we needed, needed to be somewhat accessible in, within the apartment complexes. And we wanted to go to places where we had already distributed district Chromebooks also so that those could be, so that those could be used. And then finally, we had to talk to the apartment complexes and make sure we had their blessing. And uh, that was just, you know, not, not very hard to get, actually. When were those two pilot days? Um, so almost two weeks ago. It was a Wednesday and Thursday uh, just, before, just before Good Friday, as I recall. Right, Sharon? I believe so. And so is it fully operational now? Well, sure. It's fully operational. It actually never stopped. Um, but we have been adding sites and changing locations and, and learning from the data that we find and responding to community requests. So we went from 13 locations to now, I believe, 20 locations, if I remember right. Yeah. So can you guys just walk us through logistically how it works? Um, like, do the kids actually have to be on the bus to access the Wi-Fi? Um, you know, how do you do that with social distancing? Um, students uh, are not actually permitted on the buses uh, for the safety of our transportation staff and for their safety as well. Um, students do need to be within about 200 feet of the bus and we're, you know, the range is going to depend on the physical environment and what kinds of barriers may be in the way. But ideally, they're coming out with their Chromebooks. We ask them to remain six feet apart from anybody else and they can pick up the Wi-Fi signal from the area around where the buses are parked. How has the community responded, the, you know, the school community, the students, the teachers, the parents? Um, you said that you had some data collected and you've been responding um, to kind of feedback. So what does that look like? Um, it's really interesting. I think, I think my, my initial hopes were not through the roof on this, that it was one of many things that we could do. And, and certainly symbolically, it would, it would be um, an effort that was highly visible with a big giant yellow bus coming around with internet. Um, but uh, was kind of taken aback with how much interest there was as we started to roll it out. Um, I think that a lot of that has to do with, with the communication we put behind it through Sharon's work. Um, and there's also just a little bit of a lag time in terms of getting the word out to a community that's disconnected. I mean, we're talking about folks who don't have internet, so you can't just send them an email, right, or post it on your website and hope to get a response. It takes a little while for the word to get around. But the school buses showing up in the apartments was, was significant. Some community outreach that Sharon set up for us was significant in helping to spread the word of mouth. And then some interviews that we did um, with local media helped it to sort of become a viral thing. And so it might not have been a big deal, except that it kind of became a big deal. I also just wanted to add that the response has been very positive for the schools as well and the school staff. Educators and teachers and principals have enough on their plates right now. And this is one concern of theirs that this effort can help mitigate a little bit. So that we've been really excited about that and their response to the program. One of the things that we're really excited about is that once the community members started hearing about the program, we had leaders come to us and say, well, what about this apartment complex? Or we know that in this particular neighborhood, you have a location north of the highway and we have an apartment complex south of the highway that doesn't have internet access. Whereas for us on a map that may look close, but they, the people who know the neighborhoods are helping us better understand exactly what um, access barriers there might be. And that way we can move some of the buses from one location to another to address those concerns. Um, we've also worked with the City of Austin Housing Authority to bring buses to some of the public housing complexes that they have analyzed have the greatest need. 
um, and the highest numbers of Austin school district students in them. Um, so our transportation department has been just phenomenally responsive and they'll take these requests and they go out to the apartment complexes, meet with the managers, um, make sure they secure the permission of the community members who are there um, and the residents on site, and then they'll work with them to find the appropriate location for the buses and get them stationed there. Has the pandemic kind of, not exacerbated, but made like various disparities more apparent than they were in the classroom and in the schools. Have you kind of learned anything about, you know, the high-speed internet access issues in Austin that you maybe didn't know before? I think these disparities have always been known, but this has actually been a really good opportunity for us to understand them more deeply and really hear from the communities that this is impacting. And it's giving us a chance to get creative about how we can address that and then start thinking about the impact of the work that we're doing now and what that might look like in the future when school returns to more like what we've always known it to be. Well, I think this is good a place to leave off as any Sharon Laidlaw, lead technology design coach, and Kevin Schwartz, technology officer, both of the Austin Independent School District. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. about K-12 and university students making the transition online. We caught up with Piper Hudspeth-Blackburn, who has been reporting a story about the impact of moving community college classes online during the pandemic and how it's a bit different. My name is Piper Hudspeth-Blackburn and I'm covering healthcare and education for the COVID Analyzer Project. So you recently uh, reported a story about how community colleges are responding to the COVID pandemic. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges that community college students are facing during this time? So students at community colleges um, are facing similar challenges to students at four-year universities. However, the existing disparities um, you know, that were there before the pandemic are only being exasperated by the outbreak. Um, I spoke to students who were attending a community college in New Jersey, which is um, one of the center of uh, one of the sort of epidemic hotspots right now. Um, and a lot of those students are essential workers. So they're having to balance the stress of working um, in, the, in a pandemic while, you know, balancing online classes and dealing with the fact that, you know, some of them don't really have the same amount of resources that they did if they weren't, they, if they were taking in-person classes. So you have a lot of community colleges providing their students with laptops. Um, also, students are having to struggle to find internet access. Um, some students would normally find, you know, go to Starbucks, they would go to the local library, they would go to the library at the actual college itself to complete their classes and their schoolwork, but they can't do that because a lot of those those, those shops and um, community centers are closed. And it's not to say that four-year students aren't having to experience the exact same amount of challenges, but, um, but from the students that I've talked to, uh, you know, community colleges also serve um, populations um, that are very different than those who would be attending a lot of four-year universities. 
community colleges serve a higher proportion of students of color, low-income students, and also students of different ages. So you have a lot of older students who are coming back into education while continuing to balance their work. Hey, Piper, Joe here. What other community college functions were interrupted by the pandemic? So a lot of community colleges do more than just educate students. They provide classes for the elderly. Um, Some of these classes are sort of home ec based, so crafts, um, technology, you know, but they also can be physical activity. Um, Other community colleges provide sort of opportunities for workshops related to healthcare knowledge and how to fill out your taxes. You know, a lot of community colleges have sort of a second part in how they serve the community, um, which, you know, is also interrupted. This can be summer camp classes for young kids that sort of help a lot of these families, you know, put their kids somewhere so they can go off and work. One of the really big things that were emphasized to me when I spoke to um, some administrators was just really how much these these educational centers are sort of entrenched in community activities. A really big example of that is a food bank. Um, A lot of community colleges, a lot of community college students face food insecurity. And at at Rowan College at Burlington County, um, they are still continuing to hold their food bank and students are still staffing the food bank, but um, operations have been limited because the pandemic is only open one day a week rather than um, five. And so there's sort of, um, oh, and also there's a regular, there was a regular blood drive, which is also still continues to be operated because of the pandemic. But that's just to show just some of the ways that the community colleges serve their communities outside of just school and students and stuff. Piper, now we've heard a lot in the news about the $2 trillion relief bill that Congress passed called the CARES Act. How does that funding affect community colleges? I spoke to um, a woman at the Association um, of American Community Colleges, and she basically reiterated to me that, you know, the funding in the CARES Act would help um, in some degree, but it wasn't enough. This is not an issue um, that has solely, you know, been brought up by community colleges, like other four-year universities have also said that, um, you know, there's just not enough money to really support the um, aid that needs to go to students, the help that needs to, like, you know, the assistance that needs to be provided for faculty um, and um, even pay workers during this time. One, uh, the president of um, Rowan College of Burlington County um, actually spoke a little bit about, um, you know, the uncertainty around enrollment in the fall. Um, And that was an issue that was also brought up by the person that I spoke to at the American Association of Community Colleges. You know, as the economy is strained, you know, as students, you know, really have to think hard about finances, you know, it basically calls into question, you know, how many people are going to enroll for the fall semester? How many people are going to sign up for classes? How many classes they're going to be signed up for? And a lot of and a lot of community colleges, you know, are really going to have to struggle just as much as um, four-year universities are. Um, but whereas four-year universities have strains of revenue, whether it comes from housing, sports, um, you know, other sort of things that they're going to be struggling with the collapse of, community colleges never really had those existing sort of um, revenue pools to draw from. So enrollment is really, really key. And so there's this concern that CARES funding you know, isn't just enough to support students, faculty, and 
college operations, but you know they're 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 going to need more as the you know enrollment is affected in the upcoming semesters. Thank you, Piper, for joining us. Thanks, Sarah and Joe. Thank you for joining us for our second episode of Six Feet from Normal. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Tune in next week as we continue to report on this pandemic. In the meantime, check out our website, nationalsecurityzone.medeal.northwestern.edu backslash COVID analyzer. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Medeal on the Hill. Until next time, I'm Joe Snell. I'm Sarah Wilson. And I'm Alec Bose. Take care and stay safe, everyone.